You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Our God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and for the breathtaking word that we have been given uh, through your letter to us in the epistle to the Hebrews. And so, Lord, we pray that you would open uh, our eyes and especially the eyes of our hearts uh, to behold you in all your glory, that we might neglect such a great salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, we are going to talk about angels for a bit, but I already hit on it last week, but we're going to concentrate in on chapter 2, verses 1 through uh, 4, because we are going to learn a little bit uh, more about what uh, angels are for, but more than that, we are going uh, to to, uh, unpack what uh, the author is trying to say uh, here at this therefore moment. Uh, Anytime the Bible says but or therefore, we should pay particular attention And ask the question, what comes before the therefore? What is the author talking about? And so let's look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. If you want to follow along in your pew Bibles, it's page 1001. The first four verses. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. The word of the Lord. Well, the therefore is pointing back to everything that we've already spoken of, most notably in chapter 1 and those first opening verses, which are going to be held ever before us throughout the entirety of this study, because this is the springboard. So if you look back to chapter 1, beginning uh, in the first opening verses, long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Therefore, because the author goes on to talk about how Jesus is not an angel and how Jesus is different from the angels, and knowing uh, who Jesus is, who he is and what he's done, is of paramount importance for us to understand the Christian faith. Because if we get Jesus wrong, everything else gets doesn't matter. We'll get it totally wrong. If we set off at just a little bit of a wrong angle, even uh, the quarter of a thousandth of a degree, we're going to end up in the wrong place. And so getting who Jesus is and what he's done right means everything. 
But there's some confusion because the people that the author is writing to are people who grew up in the life of the synagogue. They're Jewish believers in Jesus. And there was a split that happens in the life of the Christian church. Because what would happen is that a Jew would come to believe in Jesus, and where would they go to gather for fellowship? The synagogue. And so they would go to the synagogue. But that would create tension within the life of the synagogue. And what's happening for these Hebrews here, these Jewish believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, is they're being forced to make a decision. You can either stay in the synagogue and leave Jesus to the side, or you can get out. This is a hard prospect for them. I mean, think if you've been growing up in in a particular synagogue your entire life, and you think, and you're right to think this, that the most Jewish thing that you can do is to believe in Jesus. And being told that that is incompatible with your Judaism. When again, it's the most Jewish thing that you could believe. And we can't be too hard on them. Because think... What if the bishop wrote me a letter and said, Dear Andrew, I no longer want you to teach from the Bible, for I have received a new revelation. And this is the revelation, this new word that God has given me, that I want you to teach. What would my response be? I'd toss it in the rubbish bin, right? And I'd go on doing what, what I'm called to do. But do you understand? That's exactly how... This is the situation here in Hebrews. That the Jews are saying to these Jewish believers in Jesus, you're getting some sort of external authority that we've never believed in, and you're telling us that what we've had for thousands of years isn't good enough. That there's now this new word from God That's why the author of Hebrews is going to such great lengths to talk about that we'd receive the word from the prophets. And how did he speak to the prophets? We actually see it in our verses. The Jewish tradition, and we also see this in Galatians chapter 1, how did the prophets receive God's word? By angels. By angels. And the author of Hebrews is saying we're not denying the word that was spoken to the prophets of old. We're not denying the message of the angels. Far be it. In fact, what we're doing is we are... This is really loud. Um, So anybody who was complaining about the sound system two years ago, be careful what you pray for. uh, Because your, your prayers have been answered. But in fact, now... The word that we have received and why we know that it's trustworthy and true is from who or what? Do we just turn the lights down now? <laughs> hey, whoever's fiddling around on there, fix it. Um, well, who's the revelation from? Thank you. Let's get back on track. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by whom? His son. God himself has spoken directly to us, not through a mediator, right? Not, not through somebody else, but he's spoken directly to us 
by His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this is a word that is trustworthy and true, even if it means you having to come out of the fellowship of the synagogue. And there's a tendency amongst some of these people, it seems, to drift away from what they have heard. They're not paying attention to it. They're thinking, you know, do I really want to leave the synagogue and the temple? We actually don't know where these people are. But if you're a Jew, that's, that's your life, right? The synagogue and the temple. Do I really want to leave that? But you notice here that the author is saying we have to pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. There's no intentionality about getting away from the truth. This is nautical language that the author of Hebrews is using about drifting away. No, if you're there in your little fishing boat and you're off the shore and you began to fish, unless you're anchored to something, what's going to happen? You're going to drift. How do you know you've drifted? Have you felt it? No. The only way that you know that you have drifted is by looking back to that fixed point and realizing we've gotten off course. The author doesn't say those who are paddling away from the truth. So there's no intentionality here of getting away from the truth. It's just drifting away because they've not paid close attention to what they've heard and the revelation of who Jesus Christ is and what he's done. They simply drift. And in the same way today, in the life of uh, the church of today, as it's been since the time of Jesus and even before, we have people who are very well-intentioned And some will even say, I'm trying to make Jesus more palatable for the world. And so I'm going to, uh, they may not even say, I've come up with a new revelation. Sometimes they do. Uh, But they paint a picture of Jesus that they think that the world can accept, but actually is a far cry from the Jesus that we encounter in the Bible. Well-intentioned. We want the world to have fewer objections to Jesus, and so here's the Jesus that we're going to portray. But the problem with that is that we end up drifting away. And it never ends with that. It always feeds into something else. So this drift is imperceptible. And when you find that you actually have drifted. I'm convinced it was during George W. Bush's tenure as president of the United States. Remember when they started talking about mission creep? Mission creep? And I I can't find out who coined that phrase. Uh, And that's probably a good thing, uh, because I'm convinced that whoever came up with mission creep listened to a very clever sermon on Hebrews 2. And what they heard in the sermon was mission drift. Because that's exactly what, it's the author of the Hebrews who came up with that. They took their eyes off of what they should have been fixed upon. But what happens when you find that you have drifted? You have one of two options. In the first instance, we find that you can ignore it. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation. 
Uh, that word could easily be translated as ignore. Because to ignore something is to neglect something because that which you once had your focus upon has been supplanted by something else. You get a new marker, a new fixed point. So that's the first option. If you're drifting, you can simply ignore it and you can find something more important and turn aside from the original fixed point. Or you can return to it. You can realize, my goodness, I've drifted away from where I'm supposed to be. This shoreline that I'm looking at is foreign to me and I don't belong here. I need to go back. And so we're giving out free chickens to the kids today in Sunday school. And so we either return to the fixed point or we ignore it and act as if it doesn't exist. And sometimes we will even try to project upon our drifting and to call it something that it's not. I read recently uh, in the paper that uh, the Mormons no longer want to be known as Mormons. Don't call us that. In fact, the press release, which is fascinating, says we don't even want to be called Latter-day Saints. We want to be called, wait for it, Christians. Why? Well, I have no doubt uh, that when Joseph Smith found the tablets, uh, as he alleged to have found there in, uh, was it Ohio or Indiana? Where was it? New York. Oh, New York, of course, the burnt over district. Uh, he found them in New York, uh, and then he traveled out to what was then the West. Uh, but that it was really well-intentioned. And he even said, this is a new revelation given to me uh, by Jesus Christ. And he even used biblical ideas, because who helped him translate it? An angel. Right? An angel of the Lord helped him translate it. Now, what we would say is that, uh, the, that the definitive revelation has come, bef- come through the prophets and has come through the Son, Jesus Christ, uh, but that as the author of Hebrews says now, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, which means what? It's finished. God has spoken definitively and clearly in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And to add anything to that is to subtract away from the Bible, is to subtract away from Jesus Christ. And so when Joseph Smith says, I have a new revelation, we can say that's all well and good, but that is the point at which you depart from Christian Christianity. And just to be honest and to be a person of integrity is to say, yes, we're something a little bit, we've added to it. We've added to it. And so now, understandably, they want to be known uh, as Christians. But of course, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, they did begin as Christians. Uh, but have gotten significantly off track. But to try to redefine the terrain by saying that which we've drifted upon, drifted away from, we're now going to project onto our identity the fact that we haven't drifted is foolishness. And how can we say that it's foolishness? Because we look at the fixed point, 
Jesus Christ, who he is and what he's done, and compare it to all things. And the problem is, is when you get that wrong, again, you begin to drift so far away that you've lost any sight of the fixed point who is Jesus. And I think that we're seeing that in the latter part of the 20th century and even now in some of our mainline denominations. That when we really get down to it, uh, we end up talking about uh, someone who is not the Jesus of the Bible. And so one of the things that I would be very happy to engage in uh, with uh, those uh, who would declare that God has given us a new revelation that is contrary to his word is a conversation about who is Jesus, what did he come to do, what has he accomplished, uh, what does it mean to be a Christian, uh, and what, is it, what does it mean to be the church, these Hebrews 1 uh, conversations, and even what the author is saying in Hebrews 2, pay close attention to what we have heard, lest you drift away from it. The conversation is not moving forward, let's talk about these new things, but talking about these new things in the context of what? What we heard. What we heard. And to tether ourselves to it. To be fixed upon it. Lest we drift away. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, again, the author saying that the, the message that the prophets received is indeed the word of God, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, that is, is the law of God was made clear through the prophets, and what the punishment was when the law was transgressed, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Now, that's a funny word to use, because if you've been following the teaching of this letter, you would rightly believe that the question that the author would pose is not such a great salvation, but how shall we escape it if we neglect such a great message? That would make more sense here, wouldn't it? Because that's what he's been talking about. The message of the angels given to us through the prophets. The message of Jesus Christ given through God himself. But instead, the author talks about neglecting such a great salvation. Now this is not an evangelistic verse, although people will use it that way. Who is he speaking to? Believers. He's speaking to Christians about neglecting the salvation that they have in Jesus Christ. Because the author of Hebrews, as we find especially in other epistles, don't differentiate between the message and salvation itself. The message is the means by which we are saved. Or I should say the vehicle by which we come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why Paul writes in Romans... How will we know unless somebody tells us? We must have preachers if we are to be saved. Because it's not a general revelation that has been given to us. We have to have the specific revelation that's been given to, given to us in God's Word, who is Jesus Christ. This is not something that we're going to come up with on our own. Have you ever thought about that? Let's say that you wanted God to give you a new revelation. What would that look like? If we wanted to come up with a plan of salvation 
that is of our own making, it wouldn't look anything like what the Bible talks about. I don't like this way. I don't like it at all. I like having a checklist. Right? Just tell me what, what I've done. I want the Weight Watchers approach to salvation. Right? I, I want accountability, kind of, not really. But I want the weigh-in to tell me how I'm doing. And I want the weigh-in sometimes to tell me, you know, you're doing great. I'm totally into karma, theoretically. Practically, I'm not. Because I want there to be justice, and if there be injustice, just let it be in my favor. That's really what I want uh, in my life. I mean, think about it if you set Christianity up against all the other religious faiths of the world. Uh, for instance, let's talk about, um, uh, about the Hindu. Uh, the world is bad in Hinduism. The physical is bad, and you're trying to re- get reincarnated from life to life to life until finally you're not a part of this physical world. And so you're a really bad person in one life, you're going to come back as something really bad, right? something that you wouldn't want to be. Uh, you're a really good person in this life, you might come back as a higher caste, or better yet, you come back as a cow. Right? It's a pretty good life, unless you've got Muslims in the area. That's been a problem in India right now, uh, where they do you in. But if you're a good cow, I suppose you can make it uh, into the realm beyond uh, physicality. Uh, and, and who knows how many incarnations you're going to have to go through. And so you can imagine the conversation between the Hindu, who has been through multiple incarnations, and the Christian, and they ask the question, let me get this right. I have to work as hard as I possibly can to get my life together and to live the best life that I can live now, honoring uh, Krishna and doing the best that I can. And all you have to do is to put your trust in Jesus and you get in? In a word, that's totally unfair. It's completely unfair. And yet... That is exactly what the Bible teaches. That those who put their trust, who rely and depend upon the Lord Jesus Christ for their salvation, are the ones who are saved. Tis mercy all, immense and free. And oh my God, it found out me. As Charles Wesley sang. Tis mercy all, immense and free. It's overwhelming, amazing love, how can it be? It's, it's a, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make any sense at all that rather than trying to work our way up to God, God has come to us. When there was no way, God has made a way. And I don't worry about the exclusive claims of Christianity. We would be neglecting such a great salvation if we did. And so when we read in John's Gospel that I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father but by me, I don't wince. I don't think this is going to be a really hard word for the world. I'm actually overwhelmed by it. Not because Jesus is the only way, but that there's any way. What a remarkable thing that God has actually made a way when there was no way. 
And trying to make sense of it to the world, to try to explain it to the world, is nonsense because it's a spiritual conversation. We can simply put it out there and pray that by the Holy Spirit, God opens the eyes of their hearts. You can even try to rationalize with them. I mean, it's ridiculous to say, well, Jesus says that in John's Gospel, but I don't believe that for a minute. I think it's too exclusive. Well, what if you fell off an ocean liner? It's my favorite illustration to use. You fell off an ocean liner, and someone threw you one of those little orange ring thingies. Threw it to you. I mean, as you're flailing in the ocean, would you yell up, no, thank you, I want options. What would you do? You would take hold of it. And you would sing praises that you were once lost and about to go under the waves and be lost and gone forever. But all of a sudden, there was a way presented, whether that be even a log. Whatever it is, you will rejoice to see a means of salvation before your eyes. And in the same way, God has sent his son to rescue us. And so to use a word that sometimes we use, to backslide, to think, well, maybe Jesus isn't who he said he was or who he says he is, and that maybe I do just need to tone this Jesus thing down and sit silently in the synagogue and continue to put my trust in the blood of bulls and goats, which the author of Hebrews will address soon, I'm just going to take that option. I'm going to neglect such a great salvation. For us to lose sight of who Jesus Christ is and what he's done for us means to neglect a great salvation. It means to actually undermine who he is and what he's done for us. And yet that is what the Bible puts its square focus upon. That's why the articles say that the Bible contains all things necessary to salvation. It's the great question. It's the question that that Matt Schneider asked. What was the great dilemma that you were dealing with, Matt, when you met at brunch with... Why did Jesus need to die on the cross? I I get the question all the time when... uh, when I'm on an airplane uh, and when I'm feeling it, how many of y'all have ever faked sleeping on the airplane so you don't have to talk to the person next to you? The worst is when I visited some of you in the hospital and you pretend you're sleeping and I walk in and I say, I know you're awake. I know you're awake. Uh, but every once in a while I do engage in conversation and I don't tell them that I'm a minister. I never wear my collar on an airplane. That is the worst idea on the face of the earth. Because immediately they either shut down and won't be honest with you or they begin just to make up lies about how um, yeah, about Christianity and, and how uh, they go to certain churches and things like that. And so I, I don't wear a collar when I travel. Uh, it doesn't help even uh, get upgraded. So um, I, um, in fact, they, they ask if I can help serve drinks sometimes. Uh, but if, um, if I'm on the plane and I've had these conversations, it's about 15 minutes into it before I finally let them ask me, so what do you do for a living? And when I tell them I'm a pastor, uh, 
At that point, they're too deep in the conversation to be able to shift, and so we continue on. And it amazes me the number of times who, when you get to people who ask questions like Matt Schneider did, why did Jesus have to die on the cross? And often, how do I get right with God? How do I know I'm okay with God? What do you say? You talk about Jesus, right? You you talk about Jesus. You don't uh, tell them, well... What kind of life have you lived? Uh, what, what do you think you've done to get yourself closer to God? Because that's, that's the world's idea of religion. And more often than not, when people come to me and say, this is the problem that I have with Christianity, and then they articulate that thing, and I look at them and say, I'd have a hard time with that too if it were true. Because even their perception of who Jesus is and what he's done is completely off base. Right? Everybody thinks that the world is moving in the direction of Jesus. That people in their hearts are searching for Jesus. Now they may actually want something like Jesus, but actually what the Bible says is they're going in the wrong direction. Like Paul on the road to Damascus. What was he going to Damascus to do? Kidnap Christians. Kidnap Christians and bring them back to Jerusalem for trial. It was when he was going in the total wrong direction that God appeared to him in his mercy and saved him. And it's the same with us. It's the same with us. And so how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord... And it was attested to us by those who heard. So Jesus himself declared it. And those who were eyewitnesses to it re-emphasized that. Said this is what Jesus said. This is what Jesus had done. And while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. This is the early church. They would not have been... uh, Uh, They would not have been ignorant uh, to the way that the Holy Spirit of God had been working uh, in the life of the church uh, after the ascension of Jesus. Because after the ascension of Jesus, what happens? Pentecost happens. Babylon reversed. Or not, uh, the Tower of Babel uh, reversed. Where all of a sudden, instead of having confused languages, everyone who was in Jerusalem that day heard the gospel in their own language. That's the point of the gifts. The gifts are never ends unto themselves. This is where the Corinthian church got totally sideways. They began to emphasize the gifts over what the gifts were supposed to point to. This is why Paul says, if you have somebody that is speaking tongues in your congregation, they're not allowed to be loud about it unless there's an interpreter. Why? Because if I got up here and began to teach this class in Sanskrit, how good would that be? You wouldn't understand a word that I'm saying. What does Sanskrit sound like? Mark, you speak Sanskrit, don't you? Or ancient Assyrian, something like that. Um, That's how he wooed Naomi. She said, please, please speak Assyrian to me. It, wouldn't, it would be a total nonsense. It wouldn't make sense at all. 
And so Paul says, if it doesn't point to the Lord Jesus Christ and articulate who it is, who He is and what He's done for us, if anything veils the gospel, it needs to be taken away. This is why John refers to miracles in his gospel as signs. They point to something. It's If you're driving on I-20 and you get to a sign that says, Welcome to Birmingham. Well, it doesn't say that. It just says Birmingham City Limits. And you pulled the car over and you told your children in the back seat and whoever else is in the car with you, well, here we are, we're in Birmingham, and you just camped out around the sign. It's a nonsense. In the same way, to park yourself at the miracles and to bask and rest in those would be to miss the, the point entirely. It's what the miracles point to, and that is Jesus Christ. And that's why the Holy Spirit distributed those gifts and miracles so that they would ultimately point to Jesus. I think that that's one of the things, and I'd be willing to engage in a conversation about this, uh, that is interesting in our world today. Because there has been a decrease, certainly from the New Testament, of the miracles that God wrought in the life of believers. Actually, if you read the entirety of the Bible... How many miracles do you read about in the Old Testament? I mean, they're there, but they're not happening all the time. And in the New Testament, they really are happening around Jesus and early on in the life of the church in order to advance the gospel. But what we find is once the gospel begins to advance and people are articulating the gospel, we find that the miracles begin to ebb. Why? Because the Bible is, and the gospel is being articulated in a way that people can comprehend. And of course, the greatest miracle of all that can happen is what? Right. People coming to new life in Jesus Christ. What the changed heart of the whole multitudes of heaven rejoicing that someone has come to know this great salvation in Jesus Christ. That is the greatest miracle of all. Others might be fantastic, remarkable, but nothing compares to the miracle of saving faith in Jesus Christ. And yet, I do think that we're seeing miracles in the world, especially in those unreached people groups. I mean, the testimony of people uh, in places like China before the gospel came in, of having dreams about Jesus and then someone preaches to them and they say, hey, that's the guy that I dreamt about. But again, it didn't make sense until when? The miracle was an affirmation of who Jesus Christ is. It, it wasn't the thing. He didn't go around saying, hey, let me tell you about these dreams, but let me tell you about the Jesus who appeared to me in my dream that this preacher preached about, and now I know who he is, and now I have fellowship with him by his cross and by his resurrection. That is the great salvation that the author of Hebrews points to and that we're to be mindful of. Later on, we're going to see that God, that the author of Hebrews actually gives us a definitive time frame by which we ought to pay attention to our great salvation. Do you know what that time frame is? You do if you grew up at the Advent or you've been here for any amount of time when you sing the Vanity, that today you would hearken to his voice. 
Over and over again in Hebrews, the author says, today, today, today is the day. So how often do we need to check our fixed point, lest we drift? Every single day. Every single day, we need to make sure that we're going back and listening to what we have heard, that we pay close attention to it, lest we drift away from it. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for your mercy that you show us each and every single day. And Lord, that we would not harden our hearts as our forefathers and mothers did in the wilderness and turn away from you, but that we would hearken to your voice and we might live and know you as the author and perfecter of our salvation, Jesus Christ. Lord, that we would not neglect such a great salvation that we have in him, but Lord, that we would dwell uh, and be known uh, as a gospel people, uh, not just because of what we heard, but because of the ears of our hearts and the seeds of the gospel taking great root within us. Uh, Lord, let it be by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.